0: Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm uh, today beginning a seven-week series from the Old Testament book of Daniel. And the title of the series is Living for God in a Pagan World. The inspiration for this series came to me about a year ago as I was kind of watching national and global events unfold and taking in how the Christian Church at large was reacting to it all now I don't mean to be offensive that would be the worst thing to do on your first day back but truly I, I have been amazed I continue to be amazed at how some believers react to the unfolding realities of our secular culture. It's as though we believe that the world is getting increasingly wicked. And we just can't seem to wrap our minds around how everything seems to be falling apart so quickly. Now don't get me wrong, the world is very wicked. But my question this morning is, is it getting increasingly wicked? And I would say that the self-evident answer that you would give is absolutely, pastor. It's getting increasingly wicked. But as I thought about that, it dawned on me that if we take that position it might very well suggest that we have either forgotten or ignored history. Because to say that the world is becoming increasingly wicked, listen carefully, is to say that there was a time when it was not already fully wicked. You're going to have to think on that just a little bit. Now I call this the rose-colored glasses effect that we tend to look back on a time in our memory when things were better, when things were more godly, where things were more good. But I have to ask, if we were to really dig into that, would that position really be able to hold its place? When I take my rose-colored glasses off because i have a pair myself and when i look at the past to me it seems as though the world has perpetually been wicked at least since the introduction of sin as we found adam and eve falling spiritually in the garden And that brings me to truth point number one today we're gonna get to the scripture passages in just a moment but If you have your note guide, truth point number one. Since the fall, there has never been a golden age from which things have increasingly gotten worse. As soon as sin entered the world, things immediately went from innocence to wickedness. Now think about that for a moment. We tend to act and behave and talk like there was some kind of a a golden age back in the 70s or the 60s or the, the 50s or the 40s or the 30s or maybe back in 1850 or perhaps back in 1776 or somewhere back in the past. There was this golden age of righteousness and since then it's just been going crazy and downhill. But I would suggest to you that since the fall, we've been there. Think about it. Let's go back quickly to Adam and Eve. They conceived a son, and Eve gave birth to Cain. And then she conceived another son, and she gave birth to Abel. And before these two young men could even produce grandchildren one of them rose up against the other and murdered him over an issue of worship is that not wicked i want you to think about the pre-flood population the scripture tells us there in genesis chapter six that the world became so wicked so wicked that god chose to literally kill every single human being that walked the face of the earth save eight people and the animals that he put on the ark. Now, that was about 4,000 years ago. And if we start at that point where God reset the world, we would find that there is an almost an incalculable list Of wicked atrocities that have taken place, take note, in every age and among every people group. And it has continued right up to today. Now, I'm not saying that there haven't been points of goodness along the way. Because there certainly has been good things that have happened. But the fact remains, church. The fact remains that the overarching wave of human activity, even uh, even in our precious United States, has been pagan to the core. And I'm sorry to tell you that I see nothing on the horizon that tells me it's going to get any better. And that's why, That's why I believe that we need to take a few weeks. We need to take a few weeks to consider from Scripture how Christians then are to live in a pagan world. A pagan world that is momentarily under the grip of the little g-god of this world, Satan. We need to be looking at this because I assure you That until Jesus comes with his saints to destroy his enemies, to lay hold of Satan chaining him and putting him in the abyss and establishing his millennial kingdom on earth, Satan will not voluntarily give one inch of ground. And he will successfully deceive the nations to follow him in his attempt to overthrow God and to set himself up as the sovereign ruler. Now, he will fail. There's no question about it. And God will accomplish all that He is determined to do. But until all of that gets sorted out, and it will get sorted out, you and I, if we're going to live for God, are going to have to do it in a pagan world. We're not getting back to some Christian ideal. It never existed. never existed. Apart from the death and resurrection of Christ, there would be nothing good. And it's only because of that, and because of the Holy Spirit coming into this world, and the word of God that we have that changes hearts and minds, that we have any good in this world. And if we're going to produce that good, and if we're going to live in that good for the glory of God, then it's going to be in the midst of a pagan world. Now, I believe that we can do that. I believe we can do it successfully. But if we're going to do it, there's going to be three things that we need to uh, lay hold of and never lay aside. Write this down. Number one, we are going to have to keep ourselves immersed in the Word of God. The Word of God is our light, it is our nourishment, it is our strength, it is our guidance, it is everything that we need, and we can never, ever lay it aside. That's why we need to be committed to a daily intake of the Word of God. Secondly, we must submit ourselves to the filling of the Spirit. We can't do this on our own. But with Him... Indwelling us and then empowering us because we are in the word and we are cooperating with his promptings We will have the wherewithal to do the things that god calls us to do and then we must walk in alignment With jesus our savior and king whatever goes on in this pagan world We got to make sure that we're aligned with christ amen that's where our north star is And we align ourselves with him. Now, here's the deal. As we go through this book of Daniel, we're only going to go through the first half because the first half is all about his life experiences, and the second half is all about the the, the visions that God gave him that carry us over into Revelation, and we've got to go through the summer before we even get there. Okay, But as we go through Daniel, we're going to find him and his close associates doing exactly what I just said we're going to find that as they were immersed in the word that they had, as they responded to the work of the Spirit as he moved, and as they aligned themselves with Yahweh, because they didn't know about Jesus back then, uh, we'll find that not only were they able to successfully live for Yahweh in a pagan world, but they also were empowered to have a godly impact on many of the pagans that lived around them and that they worked with. And so, I am trusting that we will learn from them and we'll apply apply some of the lessons from their lives, uh, the lessons that they teach. So take your Bible now and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Today, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 1. And my goal today, just want to make sure we're clear, my goal today Is simply to lay out the context that surrounds the happenings that we find in the opening verses of Daniel I think it's really important that we understand what was going on in the world and surrounding Daniel and his friends and others um, when these events were recorded so let's begin Daniel chapter 1 beginning with verse 1 In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, who, by the way, is just another word for Babylonians. The Chaldeans existed first. They morphed into uh, the Babylonians. In verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. And among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe. Of Judah father I pray in these few moments that we have that your spirit will help us to receive from these scriptures and others that will be introduced an understanding of what was going on in the life of Daniel and Lord may we also think about our own context as we look at his and realize that just as you worked in his life you will work in ours to empower us to do some amazing things for your glory in this dark and sinful world. Lord, help me to communicate well today. May you be glorified. May many people be benefited. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daniel begins where God's patience ends. Uh, Like every people group, Israel had her ups and downs. There were times when she lived unto Yahweh and times in which she lived for herself, pursuing the ways of the pagan nations around them. Now in the bigger picture under King kings Saul, David, and Solomon the twelve tribes of Israel were united. We could say that they were one people under God. But after Solomon during the reign of his son Rehoboam because of the the heavy, abusive taxation that he levied against the people, the nation divided and became uh, ten tribes in the north, and they maintained the name Israel, and there were two tribes in the south, and they were identified then as Judah. Israel, the kingdom of the north, was the first to be judged by God. And uh, they were judged mainly. Many, they had many sins, but the most egregious would be their refusal to turn away from idols and to worship Yahweh exclusively. And so history tells us that between the years of 1726 and uh, 17, 726 and 722 BC, the Assyrians uh, defeated Israel and deported many of the Israelites into their lands as captives. As for Judah, after repeated warnings by Yahweh's prophets to repent, lest the fate of their counterparts in the north would befall them, and after the false prophets of Judah told the people repeatedly that Yahweh is not going to judge you. He would never allow his people to fall into the hands of a pagan kingdom. It finally happened. Uh, The fall came in two stages. The first, around 605 B.C., when Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, came against Jerusalem. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was captured. He was put in chains. He was deported to Babylon. And this is when Daniel and his friends were also deported uh, to Babylon. In time, and it wasn't a very long time, Jehoiakim was returned to Judah to serve as a vassal king, simply meaning that he could rule, but Nebuchadnezzar was his overlord. Okay, And so he he served under Nebuchadnezzar and had to do what Nebuchadnezzar wanted him to do. And so he was returned to do that, and it was during that time that the prophet Jeremiah was ministering in the land. Now, Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries of one another. In their continued unrepentance, God then commissioned Jeremiah to deliver a message to, Je- to uh, Jehoiakim and his people. And I want us to see that quickly. Jeremiah chapter 36 Verses 2 and 3. God told Jeremiah to take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you. The the bigger message, which I'm not going to read, is there. You can turn and read it. But take all the words I have spoken to you against Israel and against Judah. And the reason God was doing this is because he said, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way and I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. We see that even in this time where they're, on the, they're in this time of judgment, God is still good. He's giving them a chance to repent. He's giving them a chance to turn back to him so that he can then bless them and embrace them. Well, to make a long story short, uh, this message... Uh, that uh, Jeremiah recorded was read in the hearing of some of the people. And when they heard it, they were very alarmed. And then it was read in the hearing of some of the government officials of Judah. And some of them were very alarmed. But we find that when the message came to Jehoiakim, uh, he wasn't too terribly alarmed. I want you to see in verses 23 and 24 how he responded. Uh, Jeremiah records that every three or four columns that was written in the scroll, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire after they were read. And he continued to do this until the entire scroll was consumed by fire. And it says that neither the king nor any of the servants that were there with him who heard all these words were afraid. We're not afraid. Heard all these words, was afraid. Excuse me. I'll have to go back and look to make sure I had that right. But anyway, Jehoiakim, we find that his heart was hard. You have to know that anyone who would take a knife and cut up a message that God had sent them and throw it into the fire, man, their heart is wicked and hard. But listen, despite his hardness, it didn't stop God. No, he instructed Jeremiah to rewrite the message and then to prophesy against the king that he would die in shame. And we find that after about three years had passed, he refused to pay his tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar brought his forces against Jerusalem in a three-month siege where Jehoiakim was killed. And uh, just as Jeremiah had prophesied, And when he was killed, he was given no glory. No one mourned his death. He did not receive a proper burial, but was unceremoniously thrown over the city wall to rot there in the open in front of all the people that he had been ruling over. Now, in short, that's the context. That's what's going on in the world. That's what's going on around Daniel. What we find in this context is that God had moved against his people. And he had given them into the hand of the pagan king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Truth point number two. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Yahweh is a loving, kind, patient, forgiving God amen but it is equally clear that he is a vengeful harsh unyielding impartial judge those who will not surrender to his kind patient loving forgiveness will eventually fall under his vengeful harsh unyielding impartial judgment Catch this, even those who are known as his chosen people. God doesn't just judge the pagans. He'll judge his Israelites. And make no mistake about it, church, he will judge his Christian family too. He's not beyond that and we see here that this is the case. Well, I want us to move on and take an, a look again at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar came against Israel, the first against Judah the first time, he took some of the vessels of the house of God, meaning he went into the temple and took these vessels that had been created for his worship. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, Shinar is just another way of saying Babylon, to the house of his God. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar's God's name was Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K, Marduk. I'm going to tell you more about Marduk in just a minute. But Nebuchadnezzar took those golden implements that had been created for the worship of Yahweh, and he carted them off back to Babylon, and he put them on display in the temple of Marduk. Now, Marduk was the patron god of Babylon. Uh, He was considered to be a god of compassion, uh, of healing, of regeneration, of magic, and of fairness. (laughs) He was also considered to be the creator of Babylon. When they thought about how Babylon came to exist, they would worship Marduk. He's the one who brought us into existence and has made us great. They referred to Marduk as the storm god, And so he was um, one of their agricultural deities. Now, in that time, when one king invaded another and conquered that king's territory, it was common practice that the conquering king would take treasure out of the defeated king's god's temple whatever whatever the god was it didn't matter they would go in and they would take the, the the treasured items out of that king's god's temple and they would cart it back and put it in their god's temple and the reason they did this was because it made a clear statement it said that the victors god was more powerful than the defeated person's god is and of course that would stand a reason right because if my god is greater than robert's god there's no way robert is going to come into my temple and take my stuff or even defeat my my people so if he comes in and puts me to shame takes my people and all the well that means his god must be greater amen that's that's what it's saying all right and that is what nebuchadnezzar is doing in verse two By going into Yahweh's temple and taking its golden vessels and placing them in Marduk's temple, it said that Marduk was superior to Yahweh. That's the way Nebuchadnezzar would have seen it. And that's the way the people of the region would have all seen it. And it must have been a cause of fear for the Jews who had been conquered, those who had been deported as well as those who had been left behind. No doubt those Jews would have asked the natural question, is Yahweh God Almighty? Is the God we've been sacrificing to? Is the God we've been worshiping? Is he really Almighty God? Because, how could he be if Nebuchadnezzar could walk into his temple and take his golden implements of worship and then place them in display in the house of his idol God? Remember, the Jews knew that uh, that God was dead serious about the temple, He was dead serious about the implements of the temple and how they were to be treated. Because we find in the scripture that Jews actually lost their lives because they mistreated or mishandled the implements of God's temple. So they knew, you know, God is a God of power, a God of judgment. We dare not uh, uh, take lightly his instructions. And of course that would lead them to how then can Nebuchadnezzar walk in there and take the stuff and nothing happens? I would reference you to 2nd Samuel chapter 6 also 1st Chronicles 13 which gives us an account of a man named Uzziah. Uzziah was a, an Israelite and I'm not going to give you the whole story but the bottom line is uh, they were bringing the ark of the covenant back from its captivity with the Philistines and they had it on a cart which they weren't supposed to do but nonetheless that's what they're doing and you know Uzziah who loves loves Yahweh and worships him and is dedicated to him and wants to do everything right nonetheless he's walking behind that cart and the cart hits a bump and it becomes unstable on the Ark of the Covenant looks like it's going to come falling off the back of the cart so what does Uzziah do what anybody would do he reaches out to steady it to keep it from falling God help us it can't hit the dirt kind of like an American flag only greater right can't can't happen so he does the heroic thing and you know what happens God struck him dead right there. Oh, that seems unfair. Hey, God's commands are God's commands. And what he was doing was violating God's commands. And he, goes, he was struck down right then and there. Now think about this. Uzziah gets struck down for simply trying to help steady the ark from hitting the dirt. And here we have this pagan king who invades Yahweh's temple, taking its treasures to be placed in the temple of his false God. How could that happen? Could it be that, uh, could it be that Yahweh is not God Almighty? People would think that might. But of course the answer is no. To the question, how can that be? It happened, listen to me, because Yahweh, because God made it happen. As part of his judgment against his rebellious people, he gave not only victory over the people, but also over the very implements of the temple that they reverenced. He gave all of that as plunder to a pagan king that he chose to come against his people in judgment. No doubt they were shocked. How could this happen? They shouldn't have been shocked. Because they had shown for years by their worship of false gods that they really didn't reverence Yahweh, the one true God. Let's go to truth point number three. In the conquering of Judah and the plunder of Yahweh's temple, it was Yahweh himself... Not a pagan king nor Satan who initiated and empowered the conquest of his people and his temple. In both cases, it was God's judgment against his stiff-necked, unrepentant people that brought this travesty to pass in their lives. Now, as I step back from this text and I just kind of look at our current situation a situation that's been unfolding for decades as I see God's word being pushed away and pushed aside and trampled under the feet of paganistic people as I see uh, the church failing to combat the paganism of our present world I can't help but ask why how is this happening some of the answers that come back to that question generally are well Satan is coming against us it's the strength of Satan that's causing this sometimes we say well it's the strength of the pagan culture they're just so strong out there we just can't seem to overcome them but I want to suggest this could it be is it possible that God himself is giving us over to the paganism of our day because we have repeatedly bowed at the altar of our own passions rather than following him. Now, not every Christian is guilty of that, of course. There are believers in this room, believers who are catching us online here this morning, who have and are and ever will stand strong. I applaud you. But you and I both know that as it goes for the larger church, the world has polluted us a whole lot more than we've impacted them or sanctified them. And I can't can't help but wonder if that fact directly correlates to this fact, that the church has sold out to big money, big buildings, and big crowds over holiness to the Lord. Is that possible? I think it is. Well, in all that darkness, you say, Pastor Mike, really? You came back after five weeks to give us that? (laughs) Well, I, I, I preach the word. The good part, though, is that you can always count on this, that God has a remnant. He always has a remnant, no matter how bad things get. God always has a remnant, a group of men and women who have not and will not bow the knee. God always has young people who, while they may not have a lot of life experience, have the Spirit of the living God living within them. And we find that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were just such young men. And if there were any, any innocent parties in all of this, Daniel and his friends would have represented those did not deserve judgment and should not have been impacted by judgment which leads to the question if Daniel and his friends were faithful to Yahweh then why did Yahweh allow them to be taken captive and thrust into a pagan environment and that brings us to our final truth point truth point number four when God's judgment falls it's not only the wicked who are impacted Those whose lives are dedicated to God may suffer the residual effect of the sins of others. Daniel's deportation to Babylon and his requirement to live in a pagan culture was not God's judgment on Daniel. No, it was the overflow of the judgment targeted at the culture that they lived in. And someone would say, well, why would God allow that? Well, as we're going to see, as we go into Daniel, we're going to find that Daniel and his friends were chosen vessels that God intended to use in that pagan culture to shine the light of his glory in the darkness of Babylon as well as the darkness that existed in Judah. And in so doing, God would make his glory known in the midst of paganism, And the coolest thing, and I can't wait to get to this particular part, is when the king that God used to bring against his people, the king who invaded Yahweh's temple and and disgraced those implements by putting them in an idol's temple, that very king fell on his face and declared that Yahweh is God Almighty. And no one is to speak against him imagine that and it happened because of the influence of these young men and others like them who lived for God in a pagan world perhaps I pray it so that the mission church can be a chosen vessel to shine God's light in the pagan culture that surrounds us. And so with that thought, I want to ask two questions. Christian, look up here. Christians, are you standing for the Lord in the midst of our pagan world? Are you standing or are you hiding? Are you standing with your head up, praising the Lord, or are you griping and carping and complaining about how bad everything is? Think about it. And I want to ask this question. Are you willing? Are you, are you willing? Am I willing to allow God to use us to make an impact for his name and for the gospel among those who deny him and worship other gods? I believe that you and I can be like Daniel. We, we, we can live for God even in a pagan world, and God can use us to rescue some out of this pagan world, making them God's dear children as opposed to objects of his wrath. And it's my prayer that our journey through the first half of Daniel will inspire us and encourage us to see that our world is not any worse than the world he lived in. In fact, I think if we went back and looked at it, we might find that his world was a ton worse than ours. And yet he was successful at living out his faith Worshipping his God and having an impact on the pagans that lived around him. Father, I pray now that you will take these things and that you will uh, make them uh, clear in our hearts and minds. And I pray that you would help us to see in this story of Daniel how that we, we're not going to turn it all back and make it all some kind of utopia, but we can certainly have an impact. And we can live for you, and we can honor you, and we can benefit many people by the testimony that comes from our lips and our lives if we are willing to be filled with your spirit, be in your word, and be aligned with you, Lord Jesus. Help us in this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale.